So we are starting, uh, I say we, I get to be here with you today to start a series on the life of Christ. So we're beginning in Matthew chapter 1. So if you would turn with me there, I'm going to be reading from, I'm almost afraid to say this, uh, it, the New American Standard Version. Is that a, a, somebody might call it the New American Satanic Version or some such thing like that. But if you'll pardon me, I'm going to read. Somebody asked me the other day, Stu, you got gray tape all over your Bible. And I said, yeah, and I'm joking with them. And I said, yeah, I have the Bible on tape. But they scratched their head because nobody knows what that means. The Bible on tape, you have to have some other medium to use nowadays. So anyway. So Matthew chapter 1. And we have a fair amount of reading. And I think it's good for us to read together. So we're going to begin with verse 1, and then we're going to work our way all the way through to chapter 2 and verse 12. So let's read together, again reading from the New American Standard Version this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers And to Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. To Ram was born Abinadab, and Abinadab, Nation, and to Nation, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa, and to Asa was born Jehoshaphat. Asa would be, I think, the same as Asaph, maybe, in some of your other translations, just another way to say his name. To Asa was born Jehoshaphat, to Jehoshaphat, Joram, and to Joram, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham Ahaz, to Ahaz Hezekiah, and to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and then to Manasseh Ammon, and to Ammon Josiah. And to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Sheatiel, and to Sheatiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and uh, to Abihud, Eliakim, and Eliakim, Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Eli- Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, 
and a gracious thing for him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which was conceived in her, excuse me, is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her to be his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, all gathering together the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which had been in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and came to the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. And I'm sure the Lord will bless the reading of his word and give us grace as we Uh, try to understand what he has to say to us. So let's pray, shall we? Because I think it's good for us to ask him to be our teacher this morning. Father, we are grateful for the privilege to have our Bibles open before us in one fashion or another. And we ask, Lord, that this being as we respect it to be, your word, that you yourself would be our teacher. Work within our hearts while we are listening to that which comes to us from without and help us to acclimate ourselves to it and, of course, acquiesce, change what needs to change as we are subject to the ministry of your Spirit. Thank you for the privilege, then, of the hearing of your word and teaching from your own lips. We give thanks, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So... um, I come, my name's Stu, I uh, sometimes say my name is Stu, how do you do, but nobody really knows, I don't know if you know that song uh, by Johnny Cash, but anyway, he, uh, uh, I left for Fayetteville from Hollywood in 1979, and some of you I remember from the 70s, but we haven't uh, seen each other for a long time, but 
I was surprised that I actually remembered a few names, and uh, and some of you remembered me, despite my beautiful crop here. <laughs> Other changes that take place. Somebody actually said they thought I was taller now, but it's my boots. So that's it. So we've been in Fayetteville for uh, 38 years. We left in uh, 1979. Some of you know uh, Karen Ball. Uh, she was pleased to marry me finally. <laughs> and uh, and anyway, we've raised four boys. They're scattered about. Uh, a couple of them related to the military now. One son up in New York, uh, Ben. Some of you, when we lived here for two years in the 80s, may remember Ben and Aaron. Aaron's at home. Ben is um, working as an artist in Troy, New York. Anyway, we have eight grandkids. Never thought I'd see that, but we have uh, eight grandkids. So we've been there 38 years, and um, occasionally we get down. Karen's mother lives in Sebastian, and that's where she is. She would love to be here with me, and she knows probably more of you than I do. And, uh, and I know some of you have asked uh, after her, so you uh, can be sure that she would love to be there. She's with her mom. Her mom's now uh, Patty Lance, but Patty Balls. Anyway, she uh, is now 94 years old. <laughs> and she's in a uh, just moved recently to an assisted living facility, so this is strategic for Karen. So I'm here actually visiting my older sister, Jenny, and... Uh, trying to catch up and just spend some time together. So uh, it's worked out very well, and thank you uh, for having me. appreciate the opportunity to share with you. So we're trying to get started, aren't we, on a new series. This is uh, on the life of Christ. Uh, we've got uh, 30 or so minutes to talk about all of these verses that represent such a wealth of material. Not many of us, when we read uh, genealogies, get very far with them before we skip down to the story part. And uh, if you're like me, that's probably the case with you. Um, as I got into studying my Bible and learning the value of the uh, uh, the uh, various genealogies and tracing out the people and what they represent throughout the scriptures and so on, uh, it yields a number of very practical helps to us. This one, uh, no less, in fact, probably uh, more particularly uh, relevant to us as believers and uh, helpful to us. So I want to talk to you a little bit, first of all, about the question. There are three questions that need to be asked of an incoming king. So Matthew, as you know, um, many of you more schooled than I am, I believe, uh, in your New Testament, you know that Matthew is the gospel of the king, and Matthew is writing to introduce his readers to Jesus from a very Jewish perspective. He wants them to understand that Jesus is, in fact, their long-awaited Messiah. That means that he is the deliverer individual that was prophesied in their Old Testament, and he is setting out to prove this to them. Now, if he's going to do that, he has to answer some questions, and so he begins, first of all, with the question of, Jesus' pedigree. So if you're going to put a king on the throne, we need to know from whence he comes, who is this guy, who's this guy's daddy, and so on. So we need to talk, first of all, about the question of his pedigree. So I'd like for you to turn to some verses. Are we willing to do that this morning? So 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 would be one of them. Psalm 127 would be another. Maybe we won't turn to all of them. I may have to 
uh, share a few things with you uh, because of the amount of time it takes for us to go everywhere. But um, uh, <clears throat> So if you're looking for 2 Samuel, if you're looking for Psalm 127, put your fingers there. And I'm going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Because that's what Matthew does. He wants to start out showing us that Jesus goes all the way back in his genealogy to the uh, patriarch, the forefather, the man, Abraham, who started it all in terms, in human terms. And so we want to see that uh, God is in the business of building a house for Abraham. And later he's going to speak of it that way concerning David. So if you'll... Uh, Join me if I can find my way to Genesis chapter 12. I used to have one of those Bibles that had the tabs on it, you know. And then I decided that I needed to grow up. So if anybody has that, that's my my interpretation of the maturity. Anyway, uh, so I I need to find these myself. So, uh, Genesis chapter 12, and uh, the Lord said to Abraham, did he not, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And isn't this precious? And in you, all the families of the earth. Are you with me? How many families of the earth do we have represented here? Well, we can't count them, can we? But there's a lot of us from different tribes and nations and tongues, right? (laughs) Families of the earth. And so we come from many different places. We represent many different cultures. But listen to what he's saying here and be very careful as you listen to it to recognize that you and I and all of us are here in this blessing. He says, in all the families of the earth, all the families in the earth, from you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be what? Blessed. That means God's going to show favor upon you, a special favor on you through this man whom he's choosing to start a family uh, that will eventually lead us to Christ. So we need to look at Second Samuel just for a moment because these passages represent some special activity of God along the way as he is uh, developing this family. So uh, if you can find 2 Samuel chapter 7 and drop down to verse 11. Okay, even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Are we there together? And I... I will give you, he's referring to David, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, we often think about David as one who wanted to make a house for the Lord. Isn't that correct? But, But here he's saying, the Lord is saying to David, I'm going to make a house for you. Of course, he's referring to a lineage, a heritage of people, family, and uh, generations to come that God will oversee with his providence uh, to build a house. And so he says when, verse 12, your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Note this carefully. Forever. Got that underscored somehow with your in your thinking. I will establish his kingdom forever. So there's a difference here, and he's going to point it out. He won't talk long about this, but there's a difference here between how he's dealt with Saul and the possibilities that were there for Saul's dynasty. Now he's moved Saul out of the way. We're not going to hear from Saul anymore. We're not going to hear any more from a kingdom that could have come from Saul. We're not discussing any of the failures that took place, but let me just point out to you that God casts aside Saul. But how many of us have read through the family lineage of David and his generations following him and how much disobedience and ruckus was caused by his family, even in his immediate family? And yet, what did God say to him? I will establish your kingdom forever. So now it's not going to be a casting away. It's going to be a chastening. So we've got a household we're starting. God's going to oversee it. There's a different way he's working than with the house of Saul. Now, throughout the generations, God is going to very graciously, very mercifully work with David's household, and he will chastise them to turn them around until the day that he completes his providential plan and bring the Lord Jesus into his kingdom as the greater son of David. Are we together here about how this is to be understood? So we have an immediate projection of Solomon as the son who will build the temple, but we've got something going on, don't we, that is bigger and more far-reaching and it has to do with that which lasts forever. So then I want you to turn to Psalm 127, and you may already now, from my introductory remarks, know why we're turning here, but Psalm 127 in just the opening verse. there. I'm still a page turner. Some of you have these electronic wizards that um, do it all for you. By the way, I hope you're not listening to some other preacher right now. It's just my ego talking. Uh, Psalm 127. <clears throat> Memorize this verse. Unless the Lord, that is Yahweh, builds the house, they labor in, ba- in vain who build it. Shall we read it again? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen awake in vain. So we have a providential statement here. This is the providence of the Lord that he determines to build a house. And there's some houses that can only be built by some kinds of builders. And I can tell you my brother recently, uh, I say recently, uh, more recent got his uh, commercial builder's license. Now, up until then, he could build all the houses he wanted. But he could not build a commercial building because he didn't have the license, right? And so what we have here is the Lord who claims that there is a house which he can build 
nobody else can. And if we try to do it or try to protect it or somehow guard it, there's certain responsibility we have as workers within the household of God. Isn't that true? But we're not in control of it. He's the one who builds the house. He's the contractor, the architect, the planner, whatever it is, and he's the one who oversees the work. He's on the job constantly. Jesus said, my father works all the time. He works hitherto and I work. And so the work of God has to do in our lesson this morning with the construction of a house. It's a providential work that God undertakes to bring it all the way to fruition because this house has to yield a generation which is highlighted by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate goal. I'm uh, noting here as I'm reading this genealogy over and over again that there's some interesting characters. You've uh, uh, noted some of them, I'm sure, maybe even freshly this morning. Uh, How many of you noted that there's four ladies in the genealogy? It's very unusual because normally Jewish genealogies would not contain women. It's regarded... Uh, as the seed of the men that gives uh, a credible genealogy for such a person as a king. And so we have four women who are involved in the very interesting ladies, too. Uh, They come from different places and uh, in the strangest of ways. And very interestingly, uh, you know, you have somebody like Ruth. I just pull her out here. uh, And you've studied Ruth, so we're familiar, right, with Ruth. And she probably was put into the pages of the scripture to be for us as a woman saved by grace. So she's brought out of Moab, a city which the Lord said, do not, or excuse me, a a nation where the Lord said, do not go there. Don't marry anybody from there. And if anybody comes in from there, there's got to be several generations, at least 10, I believe, they say that have to pass before they can enter into the congregation. So there's some heavy restrictions on people from Moab. And yet, by the grace of God, say it with me, yet, by the grace of God, here comes Ruth, marching into Israel, and God uses her to teach Israel the loving kindness of his own heart. She is an example chosen by the Lord out of a forbidden nation of foreign people put on display that which Israel was failing to do. She was to declare, to live the loving kindness of God before the world. Shine as lights in a dark world, but she was not doing it. And Ruth from Moab comes in and rebukes the nation, not with words, but simply by her life. Interesting, isn't she? Saved by grace. Rahab, what about her? She's the one who uh, had the lie of faith. So I I can tell too many stories um, and probably will, but Howard one time stood up in a Wednesday night Bible study in Hollywood and I was listening because I always listened to him and uh, he didn't know it, but I always listened to him And, uh, and so he got into a debate with another fine gentleman who also knew his Bible and uh, they talked about whether or not there was any case where lying was permitted in the Bible. Have you ever argued about that? Somebody always brings up, yeah, but Rahab, you know, 
the lie of faith. She got saved by deceit. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we talk back and forth. And isn't it fun to talk about stuff like that and try to figure it out? <clears throat> but here's this very interesting lady. She, had, she was a woman of the street, as we would think of it. And yet, by her action, believing, and maybe even, you know, we might think, Rahab, you were falsely motivated to get saved. You were after the salvation of your own skin. You wanted to get out of the city that you know is going to be destroyed by this encroaching army. And so I don't think that your uh, attitude towards the gospel was exactly squared away. You might not really be saved, Rahab, you know, later in the camp as they're talking over the question of Rahab and little circles over here and Rahab's over here. We're all talking about her. And we say, you know, I'm not really sure that she's really saved. How should we accept her into our group? Or should we? And so nobody's ever had that conversation here, I'm sure. Anyway, you probably had that when I walked in. <laughs> so uh, anyway, here's this uh, lovely lady that God, again, snatches from the grip of uh, literally a demonic, uh, demonically inspired people group uh, with demonically inspired worship, and she was a demonically inspired vocation, uh, uh, employed in a vocation, and yet God snatched her, so to speak, as we say, as a brand from the fire, and she was gloriously saved, became the uh, into the lineage of the Lord Jesus. We marvel at it. But God chooses uh, a number of different very interesting individuals. What about Manasseh? He ends up ruling for over 40 years as a king who was declared to be the most wicked king that ever ruled in Judah. Now, where is a good God when you have a crummy king like Manasseh ruling over people, leading them astray, tearing them down, ripping them to shreds, so to speak, leading them so far away they don't know if they were to turn back how to get back. And Manasseh yet rules for 40 years. And I've asked myself the question, Lord, how long does your patience hold out? But do you know what happened to Manasseh? He repented in the end of it. Now, only one of the history lessons of our Old Testament will give you that little snippet at the end of his life. So if you haven't read both Kings and Chronicles, you're missing out on what is said about Manasseh. But he repented at the end of it. And it's a lesson to me because some of us are still holding out. And how long will we hold out? What does the mercy of God look like? You can look at a man like Manasseh, who for 40 years was allowed to continue like that, was the most wicked man known in terms of the kings of Israel, and yet... God accepted his repentance at the end of his life. I don't know. I can't stop with these guys. It's just uh, they're too inspiring uh, from the ash heaps from which they come to the glorious uh, uh, position of grace that God gave them as they're standing later on. So the, the whole pedigree of the Lord Jesus is filled with these things. I just want you to think about three things with respect to his pedigree to take with you uh, this morning. Number one, God always has a plan. In fact, He's the one who conceived the plan. So Jesus, Genesis 3.15, is to be born of a woman. Genesis 
22.18, he's supposed to be the seed of Abraham. Genesis 49.10, he's supposed to come through the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel, where we have already read, 12 and 13 of the dynasty of David. And God supervises all of this according to a plan. Now, how many of you enjoy the book of Acts? How about Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, where it says that God has a predetermined plan. Uh-oh, he's going to talk to us about Calvinism now. No, no. Um, no, but I am going to talk to you about how we need to honor the Lord in terms of the plans that he has and respect him with respect to the plans he has for us, right? Because it comes down to that. So, according to his predetermined plan, he saw to it that Christ would die both by the Jewish people who would slay their own Messiah and by the Romans who with wicked hands would contribute to his death. But you must understand that God says it was his plan that it should take place. So when we get down to this argument about who really killed Jesus, was it really the Romans? Was it really the Jews? Do we hold anything against them? We would have been there with them, wouldn't we? They were the two prevailing cultures in the area at the time. We would have been a part and parcel of that whole mess. But it was God who had a plan in order that Christ would come into the world but eventually die. second thing I'd like you to take with me, not only is it that God conceives the plan, but he's the one who constructs often with questionable materials. So this morning, you are not a perfect person, and I'm not a perfect person, and yet it's possible that by the grace of God, if he sees fit to save you, that if somehow you respond to his invitation that you would come to Christ, that you would ask him to be your Savior, if you would come to him, God will accept you on the terms of your faith. Simply believe that Jesus is in the world at this point in our lesson, in order to become your Savior, he follows through with the plan of God. He is crucified eventually, but he is dying for your sins. If you have come to the point where you've made that sort of a decision, then God has incorporated you into his household. You have become a child of God. Now, God is pleased, apparently, to construct his household out of questionable materials. Questionable materials like folks we've just been talking about and like me. I'm a questionable material. <laughs> and uh, I'm thankful for the grace of God. Letter C. Third thing that you should take with you, at least these, and, and uh, so much more to talk about, isn't there? But he completes what he starts what we are looking at here is Matthew taking us to David. And he says, no, not just David, back to Matthew, to Abraham. And then he constructs generations that lead us really in an upward sort of fashion, doesn't it? Until King David, who's a wow, King David, what an amazing guy, and so on. But he doesn't start stop there, does he? Then there's Solomon, and we, we say, what a wonderful example of Christ in his early uh, kingdom that Solomon was. But then... 
things begin to what? Turn south, don't they? So they're going down. And by the time we get through the second set of 14 generations that Matthew gives us, and Matthew intentionally uses 14 generations, uh, maybe some different reasons why, but he uses 14 generations. It's not that there were always 14 generations in between these high points and low points. It's just that that's Matthew's way of communicating as a Jew so that people could remember this uh, better than perhaps in another fashion. So he says... Uh, so the record tells us that there are all these kings and individuals, but we get all the way down, and at the bottom of the second set of 14, it says that they are taken off into Babylon, a chastisement. It's a low point, the low point in Israel's history, uh, uh, to this portion of history. And so then, though, it turns back up again, isn't it? And somebody said, you know, you could make a nice illustration of this if you just make a big end on your paper. The first one is an upward, and I'm probably looking at mirror image to you, but the first one is an upward, the second one is a downward slope, but then upward until at the peak of it is the Lord Jesus. And you can easily illustrate this genealogy that way. What is special about that to me is that God did not get so frustrated with how things were going when it got down to that low point in his plan that he quit turned it around and he brought them up again. The second thing that uh, question that needs to be asked is the question of paternity and there's a number of uh, issues that have to do with the virgin birth of Christ. I can't go into all of them again because of the time we're trying to make an introductory remark regarding uh, Jesus being fit to be king but we have this paternity question don't we? So who is the real father of Jesus? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, we'll go outside of Matthew, says, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, and I'm quoting from the King James, this is my glory moment. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Isn't that beautiful? The body you have prepared me. So it is the father who is actually prepared a body for Jesus. John 1.14 sums it up nicely, doesn't it? The word became, or the idea there is was made, the word with all of its glory from the opening verses of chapter 1, the word as God became flesh, or was made flesh. You can't describe the virgin birth any better than that. He lost nothing of his deity. The word became Flesh, and he gained everything that was necessary as a man to be fully man at that point. And so we have uh, uh, the Lord Jesus spoken of as being born of a virgin. Now there's a dilemma here also, not only of paternity, but there's a dilemma of propitiation. Are you familiar with that term? Propitiation simply means a sacrifice that is appropriate or satisfactory. It accomplishes the goal and it's acceptable to the one whose anger must be appeased. So we have a dilemma. Is it possible that Jesus could come into the world and go all the way through his life and then at the end of it, when it is called upon him to die for the sins of the guilty, that he would be rejected in his death, that he would not be raised from the dead, and God would refuse to call him his son. 
is it, isn't that a horrible idea? Uh, those of us especially who are so familiar with the glory of the resurrection and God's acceptance of him and how he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Today, I'm calling that, him that afresh. He's my only begotten son. And uh, with pride, the father receives him back into heaven because he accomplished propitiation. He did a satisfactory offering on our behalf. Job 15.14 says this, What is man that he should be clean? And we, he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. So if we were there in the day of the Lord Jesus, we would also think that there is a little bit something funny going on when somebody says that there's been somebody born of a virgin. We wouldn't believe it either, right? And so Matthew and the other writers, when they're going to declare this, they're going to declare something that is extremely strange. We've been brought up with it, many of us from Sunday school. We've been taught it. We've gotten used to it. We don't think anything strange of it. We declare it. We try to argue it. Jesus was born of a virgin. But if you were there in that day, you would not have believed it. Just like everybody else who was there, and if they had to try to describe you what happened when the little baby was born to Mary and Joseph, you would have said something funny is going on here. But this is what Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says. The Apostle Paul speaking, this is his perspective on the virgin birth. Jesus was what? Made of a woman but made under the law. So made under the law says that whatever the making was, it was done correctly. And so there's no deception in it, right? Because it's it's accountable to the law under which he was made. It also means that everything that this individual who was born under this particular law will do is held to accountability. That means he's tested every step of his life by the law. But he's made of a woman in this fashion so that, Paul goes on to say, he can redeem those, buy back those who were under the law. In other words, condemned by the constant condemnation of a law of perfection penned by the finger of God. And so we have this impossible situation where we are condemned by the law, ultimately in the judgment courts of God, the law will be brought out, it will be stated, all of us will find ourselves as condemnable sinners, and if we haven't got the Lord Jesus as our Savior, immediately as that law is brought to bear, we will know that we are sinners, we will begin to weep, and we will begin to gnash our teeth, at least at the anger that we did not take the opportunity we once had to believe on the Lord Jesus. And so make sure that you made that decision. He was made of a woman made under the law. There's also other dilemmas. The prophetic dilemma, for instance, he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and I know you want me to clear up the debate on whether or not uh, there was, uh, you should think of the virgin in Isaiah 7 as being a woman who had never been with a man and that she somehow was a vir- gave a virgin birth at that point and that that is something that was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do, or how are we to understand that? He said, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you could probably preach to me what it is. I'm not going to talk about that, but you do need to think about it. There is a dilemma with the prophetic issue regarding uh, Matthew's use of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. So if you want to go home and 
do a question and you want to email me later and um, and uh, talk to me about it, I'd be happy for you to do it. Let me talk to you just briefly about this third issue that is at stake, a question that has to be asked of an incoming king. What about the question of from now on or the question of providence? And so when we come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, what are we talking about? We're talking about magical providence. We're talking about God bringing the Magi into the life of the Lord Jesus specifically to care for those things which he has to face now that he's been born into the world. How are they going to pay their expenses to go to Egypt? How are they going to take care of the issue of the of various needs which suddenly will be upon them and the weight will sit on Joseph's shoulders so heavily? Any of us who know what it's like to lose our job or to suddenly feel that we're out of work and not know exactly where the money's going to come from. Where's Who do I go to sign up for welfare? But God is not leaving the saints without a means by which they can survive. So when the Magi show up and they bring these lovely gifts, it's Mary, Mary and Joseph, I can imagine, they start to weep. We had no idea how we were going to get from here to there, from now to then. But now they've been given these precious gifts, frankincense, even worth more than the gold, but gold has money in their pocket. Some people want to bring out that even the myrrh was given as a cover for their, uh, their, his eventual burial, uh, a substance that was used commonly in his burial. But it might have been in the immediate that like Karen and I do, she was just offered an upright freezer from her mother, and I said, well, you could put it on Craigslist and sell it. (laughs) So it's possible they may have thought, well, this fragrance material and this myrrh, we don't have any immediate need for it just now. Why don't we sell it? We'll make some money, and it looks like we're going to have to go to Egypt, and then from there, who knows what's going to happen. Of course, we know They eventually had to come back. We don't know what Joseph did to earn money while he was away. We don't know what the welfare system looked like for them. We don't know how. We know he wasn't wealthy. One of our favorite verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, We know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And to hear him talk about just how poor he was at once he gets to be an adult. He says, the birds have nests. The foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place of his own to lay his head. He, he rents facilities and, they, and he sleeps from place to place, but he owns really nothing. He remains. Now, poverty is not the curse of God upon us. It's often a blessing for us. We need to learn how to live with it. We need to know how to be dependent upon God for our, our poverty. And the Lord Jesus learned that, spent a lot of time in prayer. Part of it had to do with how to uh, sufficiently care for the disciples and for their uh, various physical needs. So we have this beautiful picture of providence. I like to call it magical providence because just think of all the magical things that took place. You think of all the things that lined up, the study of the sciences, Daniel's a place in Persia and the influence he had on the Magi then and these individuals and the heritage that was passed down to them and then eventually 
the kind of value they put on seeing this star and how they understood that it had something to do with something special that was happening in the land of Bethlehem. And then they had the faith to follow that luminous object 600 miles or so from wherever it was they lived. Isn't that something? God's providence drawing them from one place to another. Listen, God can draw fish to a net, and God is able to draw animals to an ark. And he drew the magi to the manger of Jesus. God is a providential God. Take that with you. Make sure you understand that God is watching out for that which he has begun in you. And he will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Maybe join me in prayer and let's ask the Lord to help us understand at least what we've been taught and maybe take it from there uh, as the Lord would lead. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of having your word for the things it says to us, sometimes uh, in hidden ways and how it ministers to our hearts. Thank you that you are a God who, first of all, has a plan and you want to work that plan out in us. And when we are willing to submit to how you uh, explain it to us, then we are amazed that you choose to use the likes of us to be a part of that which you want to do. And we get to enjoy your household. We we all feel like Mephibosheth, who has been invited in his lameness to sit at the king's table and eat just like one of the family. Yet we are the family of God, and we have that place at the table that belongs to us. Thank you for the privilege. We know that that which you begin in us, you complete. And so everything you begin, you're not like me. When I start a project, sometimes they never get finished. But you are one who always finishes that which you determine to start in the first place. Thank you for your plans. Thank you for that which you finish. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of making uh, yourself known to us in such a way that we might be able to know you, to trust you, and to find out the love of our Heavenly Father. So please lead us then in a further understanding as we try to unfold the beautiful life